0: From this moment right now, till the time I finish this sentence, enough of the sun's energy will shine on the earth to power all of humanity's needs for one full day. And in just one hour, the earth catches enough solar energy to power the world for a year. Isn't that wild? For thousands of years, people have dreamed of harnessing the sun's power. Today, with the drive towards carbon-neutral energy and with rapid advances in technology, that dream is burning brighter than ever.
1: I remember sending emails to colleagues and friends from around the world saying, you'll never believe where I'm writing this email from.
0: That's Bob Freeling. He's executive director of the Solar Electric Light Fund, also known as SELF.
1: I'm in the deep, deep, deep in the Amazon rainforest, And I am writing this email thanks to solar-powered internet satellite connectivity. It was uh, pretty exciting.
0: Bob and Self are leveraging solar, or photovoltaic technology, to help transform lives.
1: Why solar energy? It represents a a solution to many of the problems that plague us now. Whether it be water, or food security, health care, or just uh, making life better for some of the poorest people in the world.
0: Bob and Self use solar technology to bring electricity to people in developing countries who can't access the electrical grid. These solar panels do a lot of things to make life easier for folks in these rural communities. But the biggest benefit is something less tangible than powering hospital operating rooms or school computers. It's something that's a bit harder to see. Turning on the lights provides a shift in mindset. It gives people hope. Bob's story goes beyond the technical evolution of solar power. It's about creative ways that solar can be used to address long-standing problems like economic hardship, access to information, and the spread of disease. These are things that the first solar pioneers likely never imagined.
1: So we've known about the photovoltaic effect since the 1800s, but it wasn't until I believe 1954 when Bell Labs demonstrated the first commercially viable use of the solar cell. If you talk to Robert Fuller, he'll tell you about the history of solar. And this was a technology that was literally a a space-age technology.
0: I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Ahead of Its Time, an original podcast from SETA, a show about the tech underdogs no one realized would shape the future. Setapp's versatile app subscription service empowers you to step into a new era of productivity. A growing number of people, many of them scientists, entrepreneurs, and inventors, believe that the solution to the Earth's energy problem is right above us, a mere 90-some million miles away. The solar panels you've come to know, those black, glassy squares angled on rooftops and in fields, have become a familiar sight. But what's less familiar is the story of one man who helped invent that technology.
2: It was shortly after his death in 1994, going through his things, that we discovered this memoir.
0: That's Robert Fuller. He's reminiscing about his father, Calvin, who helped invent the first silicon solar cell.
2: The memoir was just two or 300 pages of typed manuscript in his desk drawer that we found after he died. And he had written in it in the very beginning, this is never to be published. And when I read it, realized the story here was much more than just the technical side. And we had to get it out. So the book is called The Making of a Scientist. And it is quite a story because of the connection between his family life and his scientific life.
0: Calvin Fuller was of a different generation one that didn't air their family's secrets or its dirty laundry. But the story of that first modern solar cell felt too important to keep secret. His unpublished memoir provided insight into Calvin's childhood in gangland Chicago, his knack for invention, and at times, an early penchant for mischief.
2: He had an uncle who was almost the same age as he was, but the uncle was a fix-it guy, a experimenter, a chemistry nut, and my father learned a great deal from his uncle. And they were always mixing chemicals, making explosions, and dazzling his friends with these explosions. And they used them to uh, set off charges that would scare crows nesting in a tree, or otherwise wreak havoc on the neighborhood.
0: But the memoir revealed darker stories, too, and much of the family's trouble centered on Calvin's father.
2: He suffered from alcoholism and growing up, my dad had to deal with a very serious uh, dysfunction in his family in which he was called upon to protect his mother from her husband where he had to subdue his own father, who was in a drunken rage. And, you know, my father never spoke of this. We only found out about this after he had died and left a manuscript. I'm thinking how that would have affected him as a scientist. He never lacked for purpose, and I think one of his purposes was to get out of that family and to move on, and education was a way to do it.
0: Fortunately for Calvin, one of his teachers saw his potential and offered to tutor him for a competitive physics exam organized by the University of Chicago. Calvin spent months and many late nights studying. On the day of the exam, Calvin, along with hundreds of other hopeful students from across the Midwest, sat down to take the test.
2: He scored uh, apparently first on this competitive exam and was admitted with a scholarship, which today would be in the tens of thousands, but then was perhaps $400 for a year. And it changed his whole life. In
0: 1929, Calvin finished his Ph.D. in physical chemistry. The next year, he landed a job at Bell Labs, a famous research and development company responsible for some of the 20th century's biggest technological breakthroughs. Within a few years, Calvin was balancing family life with his considerable workload at Bell. Then came trips to his father's lab, which for young Robert was a place of wonder.
2: My dad would take me and my brothers to the labs to see what was going on and probably to imprint upon us the prestige of being a scientist there. They had people there developing digital coding before anywhere else in the country. They had people there, neighbors of mine, actually, working on transistors technology and developing the transistor. And then later, my father developed the solar cell. So there was a steady stream of world-changing inventions coming out of this major laboratory in New Jersey. In
0: 1953, Bell Labs was tackling a new challenge. They needed to develop a source of power for telephone systems in remote, humid locations where dry cell batteries had a shorter life. They considered solar power, but existing technology could only convert 1% of light into electrical current. Meanwhile, Calvin Fuller and his colleagues were experimenting with a different element for use as a semiconductor. Silicon.
2: Now, silicon is everywhere in the world, but it's usually in the form of sand. So the beaches are full of silicon, but you can't get at it because it's uh, bonded to oxygen. How can you get rid of those the oxygen? Well, my dad figured out how to do that and came up with a way of purifying silicon, so you had a pure lump of it. And then you diffuse into that silicon some an element like boron. And those are the key to creating something that generates a current when exposed to light.
0: This was a huge breakthrough. Purified silicon allowed Calvin and his colleagues to create a solar cell that could convert 6% of light into electricity. Robert will never forget the night in 1954 when his father showed him something he'd brought home from work.
2: He brought home a little windmill, and it was attached by two wires to something that looked like a 25-cent piece, a quarter. And the windmill just stood there on the dining room table until he shined a flashlight on this thing that looked like a quarter. And suddenly, the blades of the windmill spun. And he pointed out that the light from the flashlight was doing something to create a current that flowed out of this quarter, we now call it a solar cell, and drove the windmill.
0: Calvin and two other Bell scientists, Daryl Chapin and Gerald Pearson, named their invention the Bell solar battery. It marked a huge advance in the efficiency of photovoltaics. And the world took notice. In April 1954, a front page article in the New York Times announced the discovery as
2: "...the beginning of a new era, leading eventually to the realization of one of mankind's most cherished dreams." the harnessing of the almost limitless energy of the sun for the uses of civilization.
0: The technology's potential captured imaginations. Calvin's work even inspired Robert to become a physicist. But as inspiring as the technology was, there was a problem, and that was finding the right application
2: for it. It seemed like magic that you could convert light to electricity, but no one saw it is economically advantageous to do that for a while. I think my father, he might have, but he was hard pressed to, as was Bell Labs itself, to put the technology immediately into use. I mean, all they could think of was to replace typical batteries, but Initially, there was talk of using it to power phone systems in rural Georgia and rural America where there was no electrical infrastructure.
0: For telephone systems, the expense of raw material, technology, and electrical storage made solar power less practical than conventional power sources. So Bell Labs shifted its gaze upward to space. In 1962, Bell launched the first telecommunications satellite to orbit Earth, the Telstar. It was powered by 3,600 solar cells and would transmit the first transatlantic TV feed. Soon, the search was on to find other applications for solar power.
2: The one place I remember it being used that was funny, but really telltale, was a photograph we had of a camel walking across the Sahara Desert that had a bunch of solar cells on its back that powered a refrigerator also on its back. And in the refrigerator were medicines that had to be kept cold, just like the COVID medicines do. And this camel carrying the first array of solar cells in the 50s across the Sahara Desert and generating enough electricity to keep the medicines cool was kind of said it all. It said, You know, it's darn useful to have electricity in the middle of the desert. And if we can have it there, we can probably have it everywhere else as well, everywhere there's sunlight.
0: Despite the hopeful message of this photo and its success powering satellites, Calvin was less optimistic about the potential of solar power. He thought it was unlikely to become a part of everyday life. What he didn't anticipate were two important events in the 1970s. One was an advance in solar cell technology. A new cell was built that cost 80% less to make. And that was good timing because in 1973, the OPEC oil crisis caused gas prices to surge throughout North America and Europe. This helped drive new interest in energy conservation and alternate energy sources, including solar.
2: By then, people all over the world were working on improving their efficiency from the 6% initial efficiency they had up to now, it's 25% or more efficiency. On these arrays that we see going up all over the place in our neighborhoods now as people solarize their houses.
0: Solar efficiency continues to climb. Today, there are solar cells in development that exceed 40% efficiency. And as efficiency climbs, the cost of solar technology is dropping, and fast. In 2009, the cost of a solar panel installation was $8.50 per watt. By 2020, that dropped to roughly $3 per watt. In 2021, only about 3% of U.S. electricity came from solar, and that's expected to reach 20% or more over the next three decades. But even with better efficiency and a huge reduction in cost, growth for the solar industry has been slow.
2: The reason it's been so slow to take off is because the carbon fuels, oil, coal, were heavily subsidized. How can you compete as an entrepreneur, as a business person, against huge subsidies won by the carbon fuel advocates? The minute they either start subsidizing solar or stop subsidizing oil and coal, it would be a level playing field.
0: But Robert is witnessing firsthand that solar is headed in the right direction.
2: I can drive through my town here in Berkeley, California, and see solar installations going up all over the place, partly because it's California where we get so much sun. It's especially good in those places, or the Sahara Desert, if you have a camel.
0: All right, back to that story of the camel carrying a solar array on its back. I've got a picture of that,
1: and a cartoon as well.
0: Like Robert Fuller, Bob Freeling from the Solar Electric Light Fund, or SELF, knows the famous Sahara Desert photo, too.
1: He's being shaded by the solar array. He's got a fan blowing on him, powered by solar electricity, and a refrigerator that's going to take medicines to a remote village, and he's just a really happy camper. I loved it because it was it demonstrated uh, a beautiful application of of using solar to deliver an important uh, service to a you know, in a remote community,
0: and that's what self does. They use solar technology to deliver important services to rural communities in developing countries all over the world.
1: We have worked extensively with uh, programs to deliver medicine. In Haiti, We did a lot with the uh, so-called solar direct drive. Refrigerators, these are units that do not require batteries that can store medicine for weeks at a time, just using solar energy.
0: Today, there are roughly 1 billion people worldwide who do not have access to the electrical grid. And solar has become a key technology in helping address this massive gap in global electricity infrastructure. Since it was founded in 1990, SELF has overseen roughly 750 solar installations. And because each project serves an entire community, Bob estimates that these installations have impacted the lives of more than a million people. Introducing solar technology to disadvantaged communities in developing countries wasn't always something on Bob's radar. But that changed one day many years ago when Bob was living abroad in Taiwan. He was working as a translator, and someone offered him a tour of a factory that made thin film solar panels.
1: And he presented a a gift to me, which was basically like this plastic briefcase that opened up with had a solar, a thin film solar array inside on both sides. And so I remember taking it home that day and uh, taking a ghetto blaster type of radio that I had at home, then taking this outside in the sun and uh, plugging it in to the solar uh, array, the solar panel, and then having it turn on and listen to music come out. And I was like, wow, it was magical.
0: The magic of solar cast a spell on Bob. Eventually, he decided to reach out to the founder of Self to offer his services.
1: We would travel to these extremely remote, dirt-poor villages in the mountains of Gansu province in western China and install these, you know, very simple solar home systems that would provide enough power for several lights, a radio, and a black-and-white television. And I remember seeing these families turn on a light bulb for the first time in their lives.
0: The reaction of one elderly farmer has stuck with him to this day.
1: In a flash, the lights came on, and as they did, an old man from the village rubbed his eyes in disbelief and exclaimed, I have long heard that city folks do not need oil to generate light. But in all my 70 years, this is the first time to actually see such a phenomenon with my own eyes. What a beautiful sight to behold. And it's really what inspired me to become professionally involved in this field, because I I saw just how quickly and dramatically uh, a solar panel could, could transform the life of a family or a village in remote parts of the
0: world. In 1997, just a few years after joining SELF, Bob became its executive director. Self's original mission was to provide electricity to individual homes by outfitting them with solar panels. In time, Bob began to realize Self needed to expand its mission.
1: We could use it to power schools and health clinics and water pumping systems and communication systems. So that, to me, was the great opportunity that lay ahead, was to to use, to harness the power of the sun, to kickstart improvements across the board Uh, in health, education, economic development, women's empowerment, water and food security.
0: That combination of benefits comprises what SELF calls its whole village development model. This model uses a mix of different solar solutions customized to the specific needs of the villages they collaborate with to create self-sustaining long-term benefits for off-grid communities. In 2006, a professor at Texas A&M reached out to Bob. This professor had recently visited the village where he grew up in the West African country of Benin. His village was in a region of the country with over 100,000 people, all of whom were living off-grid. This professor told Bob that with a six-month dry season, food security was a huge challenge.
1: They were desperate. We found uh, when we visited that diets were very restricted, and malnutrition was, was quite common. You'd see these kids running around with the extended bellies, uh, a telltale sign of kwashiorkor or malnutrition. So I started to think, okay, uh, what could we do to help? Well, I knew enough about drip irrigation to, to recognize that it could be a part of the solution.
0: Drip irrigation was pioneered in Israel during the 1960s. It introduces water into soil at a very low rate, with water dripping from a series of small-diameter pipes called emitters or drippers. Water and nutrients reach the plant's roots in just the right amounts at the right time, enabling higher yields while saving on water. Solar-powered water pumps aren't new. Neither was drip irrigation. But the combination of the two was revolutionary. Soon, a local matriarch stepped in to run the Solar Market Garden, or SMG, in Benin.
1: So Madame la Présidente, Gani Giguera, was her name. She's still around. She's in her 80s now. She's my hero. She was the president of the Duncasa Farming Cooperative with the SMGs. Suddenly they were able to grow all kinds of leafy green vegetables, including cabbage and lettuce and carrots and all kinds of fruits and vegetables are being grown in this solar market garden.
0: Bob took delight in seeing how his new technology changed the community. After we had installed the solar market
1: gardens and they had been producing food that first year, I went back and I could see a noticeable difference in the kids. They were eating well. Their families were eating well. Uh, They were earning income for the first time and using that income to help pay for medical fees and school fees for their kids. I think it raised their level of respect in their families. They They were suddenly breadwinners.
0: Bob and Madame felt they needed to tell the world about the incredible impact solar technology had for Madame's village. And soon they found their opportunity, a major energy access conference in Norway. With a bit of luck, they were able to track down Madame's birth certificate, and after a few frantic days of planning and paperwork, her passport was issued the day before her flight. Then came the day of the conference.
1: So it is my great privilege and my great honor to uh, introduce Madame la Présidente. She was very nervous. She had never done any public speaking before, but she was there on a mission, and she got up very determined to to let everybody know what this project meant to her. Hello, dear participants. I welcome all of you in this room. I am the president of the Women's Farming Collective in Duncasa. Solar energy saved us. She said, solar energy is is changing our lives. We we can now eat. We can now access water. We are earning income. This has been a game changer, all because of the sun. The sun isn't allowing us to do this. And afterwards, I remember the moderator of our session said, ladies and gentlemen, if we all needed to know why we're here in Ozo, I think we just heard it.
0: Throughout the conference, Madame won universal praise and helped spread the word and the use of solar drip irrigation to other parts of the world. She
1: she knew she was on an important mission, and she delivered. She really did. You know, since that project in Benin, uh, now you if you Google you know, solar drip irrigation, you'll see lots of examples around the world. Ours was one of the first, and I think a lot of people took inspiration from our work and went on to do their own projects using solar and drip.
0: In recent years, lots of players have entered the off-grid solar market in Africa, but Bob and Self were one of the first to recognize the potential of solar in the region. Over the past three decades, they have completed projects in over 25 countries and collected countless stories, just like Madame's. After the 2010 earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people, Self installed solar systems that brought power to eight health centers. In 2015, they installed a solar microgrid for an indigenous community in the Sierra Nevada mountains of Northern Colombia, allowing their Ahuaku people to power their coffee processing facility. Self has used solar to bring the internet to schools in South Africa, provide telemedicine to villages in the Amazon rainforest, and power streetlights in Uganda to make public spaces safer for women.
1: Some of the poorest people in the world have been at the vanguard of ushering in the solar age, right? They they were the first, among the first communities in the world, these folks in remote parts of Africa, Asia, and Latin America living in, in rural isolated villages. They were the first ones to demonstrate the use of solar energy uh, for all these, these applications. And in some ways we're catching up now. Now, now solar is becoming more widespread in the United States and a growing number of households and businesses are installing solar onto their roofs. But the revolution was spearheaded by folks in the developing world that we've been working with.
0: In a rather interesting twist of fate, the application for solar, first imagined by Calvin Fuller and Bell Labs, is now one of the most impactful use cases of the technology. But instead of providing phone service in rural America, it's powering remote villages with electricity for pretty much every service you can imagine. Calvin Fuller died 28 years ago, but his son, Robert, has no doubt that he'd revel in solar's coming of age.
2: Solar energy was always something which it was said it has not come into its prime yet. It will. It's inevitable. And my father, he would welcome him with open arms and see that the tortoise of solar energy was catching up with a hair of petroleum energy. And it was destined to pass them, and the sooner the better.
1: I can't imagine Calvin Fuller not not being very happy to see the positive impact that that solar cells have had on the history of humanity, and the uh, the many benefits that have come to to our civilization because of his invention back in the uh, '50s.
0: I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Ahead of Its Time an original podcast from Setapp. Working on your next big thing? Setapp's productivity toolkit will help you stay focused and get stuff done. Head over to setapp.com to see if Setapp can help you bring your ideas to life.